the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Arthur Idala on AM 970. The answer. This is the Arthur Idala Power Hour with quintessential New Yorker attorney Arthur Idala, New York's go to lawyer. He's here to share his stories from in the courtroom and around the city with interviews from high profile guests and everyday folks calling in to talk about everything from politics, lifestyle, health and wellness, and more. And now your host, making the case for the city he loves, attorney Arthur Idala. So I was not in the courtroom today, but I was around the city, the greatest city in the world, uh, as I so objectively state. Uh, I went to the, the auto bush, uh, automobile show, the International Automobile Show. I don't know. It's the car show, right? Used to be in Columbus Circle. Then I think that was called the New York Coliseum. That was torn down to put up those two towers there. I believe Steve Ross, who um, owns the um, Miami Dolphins, was the architect, or the, I should really say the money man behind uh, related putting those two buildings up. And now the car show is in the Jacob Javits Center. And I was there with Luca and Arthur and our friend AJ. Um, so I had, a, let's see, a 15-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 5-year-old. And little old me. But I managed. Um, and, you know, you walk into the Javits Center and what an you know, enormous space. Of course, for me, what rings in my mind is that's where I took the bar exam. I think it was July 31st, maybe it was July 30th, July 31st and August 1st of the summer of 1992. And um, I, I, you know, I just graduated law school. This is my 30th anniversary of, of graduating law school. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I'll tell you a quick story about kind of life and psychology and your brain and how things work. Um, the first day of the bar exam, when you're going to take a test to be a lawyer, it is... Um, Three multiple, this is what it used to be like. It's the New York section. So it's New York law. So it is uh, 50 multiple choice questions in the morning and three essays. Then you take a lunch break and then three in the afternoon. I'm sorry, then 50 questions and three more uh, essays. And that first day in this huge Javits Center, there's thousands of people taking the test. Um, I felt I did okay. Now, let me just backtrack. They advise you, you know, there's all these people advising you before you take the test to become a lawyer. And they advise you, you know, if you could stay in the city, you should stay as close to the Javits Center as possible so there's no stress in the morning with traffic, what, whatever obstacles could come in your way. I'm very fortunate to have uh, literally a brother from another mother, Doug Jabara, who he was the singer at the Friars Club a couple of weeks ago when we broadcast it live from there. Doug has an apartment on the west side of Manhattan. And so, again, we're talking about 30 years now. I said, Doug, you know, can I stay in your apartment for the for the bar exam? And he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. 
uh, he had the one rule was please shut off the air conditioning when you leave because you know he, we were kids we we're on a tight budget. So I go to his apartment. I'm all set up. I have my little lunch bag ready to go for the next day. And now this is the first day of the bar exam. And so I'm going to crawl into bed. I go to bed early. I remember you guys are going to laugh at me, but I'm listening to the song from Annie. The sun will come out tomorrow, coupled with uh, the finale of um, uh, the first act of Les Mis, One Day More. Uh, because, you know, it's very emotional. You're studying for this test basically for three years and change and the last 10 weeks very intensely. I mean, you're not doing anything else but studying for this test. I did take a couple little off ramps, but we'll talk about that another time. Um, so I crawl into Doug's bed and the big test is in the morning and you, know, you want to wake up early and you want to be all on, on time and ready to go and refreshed. And I look over at his alarm clock, and it says 6.10. I go, perfect. That's a great time to wake up. That'll give me plenty of time. I think the test didn't start until 8.30. That's two hours and change to get there. Ah, the uh, alarm clock, <clears throat> it was set for 6.10 p.m. So God, by the grace of God, St. Anthony, Padre Pio, whoever's looking after me, my eyes just happen to open at 8 o'clock. The test, I believe, started at 8.30. You never saw a human being run so fast in their lives. I remembered to shut the air conditioning off because I don't want Doug to get mad at me. Ran out of the house, got, ran out of the apartment. I'm about 15 blocks away. There's a cabbie right outside just about to get out of his cab to go get a cup of coffee. He's a cabbie that literally had the cutoff gloves. And I'm like, bro, here's $20. Just get me to the Javits Center. I mean, it's 10 blocks. You don't really need to give a guy $20. I'm like, I'm late. I'm late. Please, please. And he drove like a maniac. And he got me there on time. And I got there on time. I put my butt in the seat. And you got to fill out. You know, this was all it's so funny. One of the kids I was with today, when I was telling them some parts of this story, he goes to me. This is the 10-year-old, AJ. He goes, you had to take a test on paper? I'm like, yes, yes. 30 years ago, I had to take a test uh, on paper. Um, and I remember filling out my name. You had to fill in the black little dots. And then they go, like, okay, begin. And I start doing the first multiple choice question. And I'm like, oh, my God. I just almost slept through the bar exam. I mean, and now, like, I was having, like, an anxiety attack. Uh, I was having an anxiety attack because I... I almost blew it, but I got through that first day and it was okay. Now the part of the bar exam that I really studied for, because I was always horrible at standardized tests, the PSAT, the SAT, the ACT, you, you, you put a CT at the end of it and I was on the LSAT. <clears throat> Those were just not what I was good at. So I studied so hard on the multiple choice tests, right? There's going to be a hundred in the morning and a hundred in the afternoon. Couldn't have been 200. Yeah, I think it was 100 in the morning and 100 in the afternoon. But these are multi-states. So these are the laws that apply to the United States of America. And I go in on the second day. I remember that. that first night, I actually had a beer for the first time in months. Because I was like, you know what? I did okay on the essays. Like, I knew I held my own on the essays. So I had a beer. And, like, that's a big, you know, reward for myself. And maybe I went and visited a friend. I have a vague recollection. Of just, you know, everyone needed to get some stress out of their system. The next morning, I set the alarm the right way. Of course, the next morning, Josh was late for the test, but that's another story. I do the first morning session for um, those multiple choice questions. Now, I studied, I started studying for the multiple choice in December. December. 
Noel and I and Patrick Hines, we went during a break and we studied in, in school, even though the school was closed. And so I really thought that this was going to be an easy day. And folks, it was hard. You know, it's, it's, it's A, B, C, or D, right? Um, I, I couldn't even narrow it. Down. I couldn't basically narrow it down to three. I'm like, oh, A looks good. C looks pretty good. Could be D. I walked out at lunch. <clears throat> I was so deflated. I was so bummed out. A friend of mine, John Cucci, he's like, Arthur, I've never seen you not walk on your toes. What's the matter? I'm like, bro, I got crushed. And now I'm meeting other people who I know either from law school or studying for the bar. They're like, I didn't think it was so bad. I thought it was pretty easy. I'm like, oh, my God. I, I'm, I'm, I can't believe I'm going to fail. One woman who was sitting two seats next to me, she got up and she left crying. <clears throat> um, the My buddy, John Cucci, who uh, had been in the military at some point, he has me in the front of the Javits Center, in front of dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds of people. He has me do, I don't know, 25 or 50 push-ups before we walk in, screaming, kill, crush, destroy. Kill, crush, destroy. And then he goes, I want you to look. And now people eating lunch watching me doing push-ups. <clears throat> then I walk back in to the Javits Center, and he goes, I want you to open up that booklet, and I want you to say out loud so people can hear you, you can't hurt me. <laughs> so I open up the book, <clears throat> scream out, you can't hurt me. People think I'm out of my mind. And I found the second half a lot easier. We then walk out in front of the Javits Center, and those same people who in the morning were saying that it was easy, it, was so hard, it wasn't that hard, they were annihilated. Basically, depending on where you sat, you got the hard questions either in the morning or in the afternoon. I happened to get them in the morning, which I think was a good part. And they got them in the afternoon and after they had already been slightly fried. And that is my long-winded bar exam story. Of course, the next that night after the Wednesday night, Tuesday night was the essays. Wednesday night was the uh, multiple choice. Thursday, that Wednesday night, we drove to Jersey. And Thursday, we took the Jersey bar exam, which was a combination of all multiple choice and essays. By the end of that day, after three days of testing, you are fried. Fried more than people are here on April the 20th. And the punchline of the story is I passed. I passed on the first try. Nobody was more surprised than I was. Trust me on that. Yeah. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Absolutely. That's another beautiful story about how my dad woke me up and told me about it. Um, but New York City was glorious today. The weather was great. The auto show was pretty full because kids are off from school, and I'm trying to be a great dad this weekend, this week, I should say. Um, it wasn't as full with inventory the way it usually is, uh, but the Corvette is gorgeous. The Mustang is gorgeous. The new Toyota, uh, there's two of them. There's a little Corolla, like little pocket rocket, and then there's this like Supra GR. That's their new logo. The Lexus were unbelievable, but of course... And the Lincolns looked beautiful, but I never saw that. I didn't see Cadillac. I didn't see um, BMW or Mercedes. Things were really spread out. The whole lower level was electric vehicles. So we are going to get our friend on um, on a regular basis because everyone seems to love Lauren Fix, our uh, motor. She's the uh, the car coach. Uh, so we're going to have her on a regular basis. But to today is April twentieth. It was created into some sort of a acknowledgement of Marijuana Day. So we're going to have Steve Kessler come on, who's my high school buddy of mine, who's been running a store for seven years in Washington, to tell us what the world of cannabis is like.
was about Mary Jane, I think. Mary Jane is another nickname for Mary Jahuki. And the reason why we celebrate on April the 20th is because some kids in California, I don't know, in the 70s, thought at 4.20 in the afternoon was a cool time to get high. And then it turned into like a time of day to a date of the year. But what I'm talking to you about now is got nothing to do, has nothing to do with Mary Jahuki. It has to do with you and your family and your health and your well-being and your money because you need to be prepared in case you have an illness that medical marijuana won't cure. Or you have an illness where you can't speak and you cannot tell people what you want and what your wishes, what how you want your wishes fulfilled. So therefore, while you're healthy, while you're calm, while everything is good, designate other people in your life who you trust who you trust to make those decisions for you call connors and sullivan and have a power of attorney drawn up so say i want this person to be able to handle my legal affairs if i'm unable to do so you could pick a total the same person or a different person to be your healthcare proxy which means if you can't speak if you can't tell your wishes to the doctors or to the healthcare professionals you have designated someone else to do so. You don't want the state to do that. You don't want courts to do that. You don't want a doctor making a decision on his or her own. So it's essential to have the power of attorney and a healthcare proxy. And where do you get it? Very easy. 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Connors and Sullivan, attorneys at law. They really know their stuff because they've been doing this for 40 years. They will help you make a plan that protects you best. You'll designate who you want to make decisions for you by calling 718-238-6500. The Arthur Idala Power Hour is sponsored in part by the good people at Freehold Mitsubishi in Freehold Township, New Jersey. America's been thunderstruck by the all-new 2022 Mitsubishi Outlander. Get high style without the high price, plus an industry-leading 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain limited warranty. Drive one today at Freehold Mitsubishi for the best selection and outstanding customer service. Just a short ride from anywhere in the metro tri-state area. Visit FreeholdMitsubishi.com or call You better be smiling right now. Joe Hassan, baby. Joe Hassan. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Arthur Idala on AM 970 The Answer. I am so proud to bring the next guest on because... Uh, besides all the knowledge and experience that he is going to bring to the airwaves, um, he was my captain uh, when I played lacrosse at Poly Prep for four years. I was horrible. He was unbelievable. Um, they used to, I, I don't know if he made it up or Hassan made it up. You know, what do you call it when Idala? <laughs> what do you call it when Idala's got the ball in front of the goal with five seconds left and we're down by one and he doesn't shoot? Artie choke. 
<laughs> but uh, Steve Kessler um, is a Brooklyn boy, born and bred, and he went across the country. And for the last seven years, he has operated a retail cannabis store called Paper and Leaf. It has been very, very successful. Um, and welcome to the airway, Steve Kessler. Arthur, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. So let's just start off by talking about today's date and, and the 420 thing. You know, I, I did my little homework. It was made up by a bunch of Southern Cali, Cali guys years ago, and it got basically caught on. God bless them. I hope they're getting royalties from it. But um, did you see any difference in your store today in terms of uh, attendance of people showing up? 420 is by far our busiest day of the year. Every year for the last six years, actually seven years, that's right, we'll be over seven years, we see about a two to three X jump in volume on a day like today, 420. So how many people you normally get in your store on a, you know, a typical, I don't even know, a Saturday, Monday, whenever people are showing up? Yeah, we usually have about 150 to 200 unique customers a day. Um, 420, I'm expecting closer to 450. Wow. All right. So at least, <laughs> at the very least, double, if not triple. Um, the parking lot is full, Arthur. Okay. I got you. So just tell folks a little bit about, you've been open for seven years, and <clears throat> what was, when you first opened, and this industry was brand new, what would you say in retrospect was the biggest mistake that you guys made? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I'd have to say, because it was a brand new industry, and Washington did it very differently than, than the other states have done it, which is usually converting their medical dispensaries directly into retail cannabis. So we were kind of in a world like uncharted waters. All of the shops that opened in Washington, the retail shops, were brand new. And there were new regulations, new taxes. And I'd say the biggest mistake we made opening up was just not knowing what to charge. Really? Uh, okay. We had no idea what our margin should be. We had no idea what the implications of the taxes were going to be. And, you know, all the modeling that you do on your costs and your cost of goods and everything else, you know, you, and then with, with the difficulties in, in the federal tax code, 280E and everything else, we really just couldn't figure out what our margin had to be. So, Stephen, tell people who have, you know, like people in New York who have never been in a cannabis store, like, what does it look like? Is it like a pharmacy? You walk in and everything's behind a counter. Is it like an Apple store where, you know, you're walking around and touching and sniffing and smelling? What, describe it to, for people in detail and let them use their imagination like they're listening to an old-time radio show because many people, most people, have never been into a cannabis store. Yeah, you know, Arthur, they're, they're, all, they're all very different, but I'll just start with this. Prior to, to state legalization... Washington State being one of the two of the first states to legalize recreationally. Shops were predominantly jars of weed behind the counter. Sometimes you'd have a paper menu. Sometimes there'd be a big chalkboard behind the counter. And people would walk in, go straight to the counter to talk to their bud tender, the person who helps them, and they would pick amongst a group of strains. Right? So that would be sort of what the experience was like now i've got to and how many like how many strains are there is it five ten in the medical dispensaries there were usually around anywhere between 12 and 30 currently in a retail environment like paper leaf you walk in the door i've got a live edge wood table i've got 
an architectural digest designed store, literally. Architectural Digest named us the fifth best design, design dispensary in the world. You come in and we have shadow boxes all along the walls with different brands, just like you would see in like Astor Wine and Liquors. You know, you've got- okay, so explain. So, okay, so I'm glad you brought up liquors, right? So, if you're talking about single malt scotch, right, let's just limit it to that. There are different locations where single malt scotches are made. There's different ingredients. There's different um, ways of making it. And usually, more than anything else, it affects the taste. It affects the way it feels on your tongue and, and it, on your nose and your palate. What are the different, the different strains that you, you're talking about? What, what are the differences between the 12 different strains that you were speaking of back in the day? So, so back in the day, there were you know, a lot more genetics going on. <clears throat> the, the key difference is people tend to think of, of cannabis in terms of indica, indicouch, sativa, kind of for your more energizing strains, and they all have different terpene profiles. So terpenes, you're exactly right. Terpenes are what give cannabis their flavor, and the flavor dictates the effect. So what more sophisticated shoppers are doing now, and I want to just point out, we have over 400 unique strains in one shop now, 400. Wow. <laughs> so pre go from 12 to 400. From 12 to 25, most shops are going to have between 1 and 400 cannabis flower and pre-roll strains. That doesn't include the 100 edible offerings or the 75 unique SKUs of concentrates, vape cartridges and, and concentrated oils and hash and things like that. And so now, are you seeing that there are like cannabis connoisseurs, like people who come in and they really, really know their stuff, or is it still mostly kind of people coming in and like, okay, you know, they, they rely on their bud tender to uh, offer them a product? We definitely have cannabis connoisseurs. I mean, people come in, we've, you know, I'd like to say just like the single malt scotch, someone is willing to pay, you know, $60 for a, for, for a 3.5 jar of cannabis if it is grown the best, cured the best, clean, delicious. This is what people are willing to pay for. Now, you can also get a 3.5 gram bag of cannabis in my shop for $10. One-sixth of the price. It's going to be outdoor grown. It's not going to be pretty. It might not be trimmed as nicely. might not have as many unique terpenes, it might have the same flavor, but it does the job. So you've got everyone, people, some people like Budweiser, some people won't touch anything other than, you know, 20 right, a single malt card, right. I got you. So, and, and in terms of sales, is it uh, greenery that you're selling more, or is it edibles that you're selling more, or is it comparable? So flour has always been sort of king. Um, we sell more flour pre-roll than anything else. However, the fastest-growing section, I think, in almost every dispensary in the country is, is edibles. And um, a lot of that has to do with, with sleep. I, 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 again, researching this for this segment, uh, most of the edibles, and, and it's women. It's a high degree. I think more women than men are ingesting edibles before they go to sleep, and they're saying it helps them sleep better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'll put, I'll, I'll put my wife right out there. She uses them for sleep. I use it for sleep. I would say, you know, you're absolutely right. Not only women, uh, people over the age of 50, like myself, 
um, are going to rely on these things to make sure that we have a good night's sleep. A lot of people, especially in my community, I live in a small community, about 25,000 people on Bainbridge Island, just across from Seattle. And, and the folks here on Bainbridge Island, you know, really do appreciate getting back to sort of the bud tender chat. They really do appreciate relying on our people to make sure that they can give them a product that's going to help them. And if they find something that's going to help them sleep, or they find something that's going to help their stomach when it's upset, or they find something that helps them with their stress and their day-to-day, they're going to come back and they're going to rely on that bud tender, that expert. And at the same time, our customers are getting smarter. And you're going to see this in New York very quickly. It's going to take about six months. And, and, and by the way, Arthur, everybody in New York, relax. It's coming. It took over two years after the passage of I-502 in Washington before we actually had any shops opening. And it took another six months to a year before those shops were full of product. So you're on target. You guys are going to open. You're going to have shops popping up here and there. And then the next thing you know, you're going to have a full, robust, legal cannabis marketplace that hopefully, it's going to be the toughest part, hopefully is able to challenge the black market in New York. Because being a New Yorker, I know how powerful that black market is. Well, you have been saying that. You've been saying that from for years now. And again, we're talking to Stephen Kessler. Uh, Stephen is a, a Brooklynite. Um, Stephen, when did you move out of the city? 2011. Oh, yeah, so I was going to say, right, 10, 12 years ago. Okay. And um, he moved over to the West Coast, and he operates a store called Paper and Leaf. It's a cannabis store. does very, very well. As we now know, it's an architectural digest because it's so beautiful. Stephen, let's talk about the negative parts of it, okay? And I know you'll be honest because you're always honest. When you used to tell me how bad I was at lacrosse. Actually, you were very sweet to me. You're actually very sweet with me. You know, Steve, what I remember most, besides all the wonderful times we had and the games we had and the friendship we had, was where we had the blue and gray games that, you know, it was like the end of senior year, and we had to do some kind of a relay race. And they would divide the cl- the senior class, some senior, junior, I don't know, between the, half the class was wore, wore blue and half wore gray, right? Those were the colors, correct? Or were they like blue and yellow? I don't it was, even remember. Yeah, it was, it was like color walls. Right, it was like color walls. And we had a, we, there was some sort of a race, and it was like a relay race. And the last leg, I had to run up against Mary Jean Bonadonna, who, yes, she was a woman, she was also the captain of the track team, right? And I just remember you screaming at me as I'm running. And we had a game later that day. As I'm running, and you're like, I thought oh, you better not let a girl beat you. And I ran, I ran, and I won, and I went right into the locker room, and I threw up. <laughs> I threw up because I didn't want to let you down. You were the captain of the team, and I was not going to let you down. But let's talk about, you know, as a New Yorker, now that you're out west, besides all the other craziness I'm sure you see, the differences between Bay Ridge and Bainbridge, um, <laughs> what, what are the negative parts about living in a society uh, where cannabis is so readily available? I'm talking about, you know, DWI. I'm talking about kids, high school. What, you know, what, what is the societal effects that you've seen? And I understand you're in a conflicted position because, you know, this is your industry, but I, you know, just be blunt about it. I don't think you're getting a lot of customers listening on this channel, so I don't think it's going to hurt your, <laughs> your, your weed practice out there. Yeah, you know, look, I, I think what happened here on Bainbridge is, can sort of be echoed everywhere in every community all around the country, you know, small cities, big cities. 
you know, I went to every single planning commission meeting, every single city council meeting, and, and the thing that the people in the community were most freaked out about when they knew that a cannabis shop was going to open was the kids and the edibles, right? This, was, this is what everyone was concerned about. So to me, the biggest issue that we have and the biggest responsibility, really, is to make sure that things are better in the community, not worse after legalization. And it's not an easy thing because with legalization, the black market has more room to wiggle, right? People aren't getting picked up for possession, which in a lot of ways obviously is a good thing. People aren't being picked up for, you know, minor cannabis use. You see it on the streets of New York right now. Now, the biggest issue that people were concerned about were the kids. And I would say still today, the biggest concern in the community is about high, the high school kids. And every now and again, we will have a parent come into paper release and say that they found their student, their child, had possession of cannabis or cannabis product. Now, they weren't in a paper leaf package. They weren't necessarily a paper leaf vape cart because I will say this, having licensed, regulated shops makes every incentive for the retailer never, ever, ever to sell to anyone under the age of 21. Now, it's also in the state of Washington a felony to give cannabis, even as a gift or anything, to anyone under the age of 21. It is a felony. Well, that's good. I, I think we probably need that here. Steve, where is where's the, the, the cannabis coming from in the black market? You talk about the black market. You've also educated me that people who are, who are awarded these licenses to grow cannabis, to grow marijuana, that there's like bar, it's barcoded all the way through from when they pick it, it gets barcoded all the way down to a, a roll joint is barcoded. So where is the black market marijuana coming from? Usually from illegal growth. You know, it's not happening in the, in the regulated market. So, you know, there are communities, there are areas, obviously, everywhere. People can grow it in their basement. People can grow it in their garages. People are growing it, you know, in their backyards. And there's very little incentive for law enforcement to crack down on any cannabis crime because they don't, they don't want to tie the court systems up with, with something that's, you know, readily available in the store. So the same way state cracks down on underage drinking, and on, you know, underage possession of alcohol and how it's frowned upon. We need to use the same common sense ways of regulating the plant. And, you know, quite frankly, in my opinion, you know, the, the, the societal harm and the potential societal harm is far less with cannabis than it is with alcohol. And we have learned in our society over time how to use the law and use common sense and regulation to make sure that it's safer. Now, is it ever 100% completely safe? No. Well, the marijuana is much more potent today than it was in, in the class of 1985 of polyprep. And, Stephen, like, what are they saying it does to the brain, to the human brain? You're smoking a joint a day, hypothetically, or you're eating an edible every night before you go to sleep. And, you know, this is your world. Has there been studies that show it has a minimal effect, it has the same effect as having two martinis every night? Or do you not know, and you could just pass on the question? <laughs> no, no, I'm happy to answer, because there are. There have been lots of studies. And the reality is this: anyone, quite frankly, under the age of 25, shouldn't be using cannabis, certainly not smoking it, because there are studies done that it definitely has a negative effect on the frontal lobe of the brain, 
up until, until the frontal lobe of the brain is fully developed, which is around the age of 22 to 25. They don't know exactly, right? Right. But we, it is important, and look, I'm very proud of this. My, I have a 14-year-old son, you know. Hold on, just let me let people know. This is Stephen Kessler. Stephen runs the Paper and Leaf store. It's a cannabis store. He's been running for seven years in Bainbridge Island in the state of Washington. And he's a real insider on the world of, of marijuana. That's you know, It's it's past in New York. It's just a matter of when, not a matter of if. Talk about your 14-year-old son, Steve. Yep, so my 14-year-old, it's interesting. And, and, you know, the word marijuana, it's been used since... 30s in this country, right? For, for, to give you one example, my 14-year-old said to me the other day, he said, Dad, I'm not going to touch cannabis until I'm 25. And I asked him why. And he said, because it's going to do bad things to development of the frontal lobe of my brain. He does a lot of reading, a lot of Googling. <laughs> He's a smart little dude. And he himself self-selected, right? And look, we'll, we'll track this. You know, and I consume cannabis around him in the same way that I, would, that I consume wine, in the same way that I consume beer. I don't drink beer and wine and get in my car and drive. I don't drink beer and wine, you know, and, and you know, hand it over to my 14-year-old kid and say, here, try it. Um, <laughs> I do that with the wine, by the way. <laughs> I, mean, well, a little I do that with Luke. Yeah, Luke, you want a sip of red wine? You should have seen Grandma Passover passing that glass across the table. Then, um, but what about but, Purim? In Purim, you got to drink a little bit. Uh, yeah, they're all. Did we give them the grape juice? Um, so, <laughs> but but the, the reality is, my son, who's 14 years old, didn't even know what the word marijuana was because all we use out here is the word cannabis. Yeah, I know you taught me that. You're like already nobody, no one says no, ma- marijuana no, like, anymore. <laughs> well, they, a lot of people do. It's in the law. Right, and and there's actually in the state of Washington, the governor here in Washington just recently said that he was going to push a bill to the Senate that through the Senate here that is going to remove the word marijuana from the law. Law. I mean, and, I, is that such a big deal? I, mean, I think we got bigger problems than that. I mean, well, it, or we could, you know, Steve. As I'm talking to you, they they just released something here online about um, in New York. And I'm going to talk about it when you and I are done about fatalities in the city of New York have gone up so much. Um, is it a problem in states now where cannabis is, is legal, uh, like driving under the influence of cannabis and causing accidents? So we haven't seen it here. Uh, I know there were studies in Colorado and Oregon um, that also did not see an increase in impaired driving as a result of, of cannabis use. Look, my take on it is this, Arthur. Prior to legalization in Washington, in New York, Colorado, Oregon, everywhere, people were smoking it. Just like State Senator Savino said you know, yesterday on the show. You know, look, I got an issue. People were doing it and are doing it with or without legalization on the state level. And they're, they're, I don't believe that the number of impaired drivers has increased. I believe that there are definitely impaired drivers out there. They shouldn't be doing it. But the number of impaired drivers, in my opinion, studies that I've looked at at least, don't show an increase in... in okay, hey, that's good news. Let me, before I let you go, Steve, that, you know, today on April the 20th, the mayor of city of New York, Eric Adams, he released a memo that he's putting $4.8 million um, in his executive budget to support community outreach and technical assistance for businesses uh, who are going to come into the cannabis industry. Um And it's, you know, I'm going to read one quote. The cannabis industry could be a major boon 
to our economic recovery, creating new jobs, building wealth in historically underserved communities, and increasing state and local tax revenue. Um, and he, there's another part of it where he talks about he really wants to help people who were the victims, quote-unquote, of the war on drugs. So I guess like uh, Senator Savino said last night, not kingpins, but people who got kind of maybe caught up in, in all of the arrests during that rough period here and, and we were trying to fight crime. So what have you seen in the state of Washington, Stephen Kessler, the owner of Paper and Leaf uh, Cannabis Retail Store? Is, is, is there the equity to uh, empower people in an underserved community or a, a economically challenged community? Is this, I mean, that memo that the mayor sent out has the word equity in it like 50 times. So is this, uh, uh, do you see this as being a real opportunity or, or what has your experience been? That's, that's, everyone has good intentions and good visions, but Stephen Kessel, you've lived it for seven years. You're around it. This is your industry day in and day out. What have you seen? Is this, a, a, is it a realistic expectation? You know, other states have given a lot of lip service to what you just described, and I appreciate what, what the mayor is, is, is putting forth. I appreciate what, what the governor is putting forth in trying to create the, what I would consider the first, first social equity program around cannabis. So Washington swung and missed, Colorado swung and missed, Oregon swung and missed. Everybody who has stated somewhere in the law that they were going to create a robust social equity piece in the law has swung and missed. And my experience to date is that it hasn't been done. It hasn't been done properly. And I appreciate that, that the mayor is, is coming out and, and saying they're going to put a little bit of money into this. But I'll be quite frank, $4.8 million is, is just not a lot of money. Um, it, it may help some folks get up and started. Um, but I say the proof is in the pudding. Like, I want to see how they can actually you know, make it actionable, get shops opened by people who were unjustly locked up for a plant that people are making, you know, millions and millions of dollars off of and that states are benefiting from all those tax dollars. But, you know, right now, to date, I haven't seen it happen. I haven't seen it done effectively. I appreciate that New York... Uh, proud to say that New York was able to pull it off. Um, but but what, you, what you have drilled in my head, and as soon as you started, you know, when they were talking about New York, you know, having marijuana legalized, pardon me for using marijuana, um, but um, you said, Art, if they don't crack down on the black market, it'll never work because it's just going to be cheaper to buy more or less the, the same product or the same type of product on the corner uh, then where it's there's no overhead, there's no rent, there's no. It's almost like the guys who sell the fake pocketbooks on the on the street. Um, that's what I was trying to tell Diane Savino, and that's what I was. Um, you know, I am in touch with with the mayor's office on a regular basis, and it, it is a problem because the message is, well, it's legal, it's no big deal. Why should we lock people up? But on the other hand, they're trying to help people, you know, start a life, and they're giving them the store. They're giving them the capital. I mean, you gave you give Andrew Shupak a, a location and capital and all of that. He's going to knock it out of the park as long as the guy on the corner isn't uh, isn't selling the exact same thing for for half the price. And so that is a uh, I'm trying to ring that bell with the NYPD and with the legislature that they need to enhance 
the crimes. Because, Steve, right now, Luca and I are walking through Times Square two Wednesdays ago. I mean, the guy is right there. He's holding a Ziploc full of roll joints. Like, he's just, like, there's no, there's not even, like, you know, when we were kids, we were like, smoke, blow, IDs, pot, you know, like, uh, blades. I, you know, they give you a fake ID. You could buy pot. Like, it's not even, like, undercover. They're in Washington Square Park. They got a little, like, card table out, and it's all laid out, like uh, the pictures I've seen of the inside of your store. So... According to Steve Kessler, the owner of Papal and Leaf, if the NYPD and even the feds cr- don't crack down on the illegal sale of uh, marijuana, cannabis, weed, pot, whatever you want to call it, it's it's never going to succeed. Is that a proper uh, summary? Look, 100% that if you don't find a way to take the black market out, it doesn't have to necessarily be through locking them up. And I'll tell you how it happened in Washington. And we've been very, it's, Washington is very successful in, in basically, you know, the black market isn't gone, but people don't have a need or a want or desire to go and get their products in the black market anymore because you can walk into a licensed dispensary that has 250 strains of flour, 200 different pre-rolls, you know, every other product under the sun. It's all been tested, as Senator Savino told us, right? Everything's going to be tested, pesticide tested. You're going to know what you're getting. The prices, eventually at scale, become cheaper than what they even sell it on the street for. And that's the second part of this thing, right? Well, we that's that. We that can't would obviously lock be everybody big. up. We just can't. It's ne- you're never going to be. No, what we have to, what they have to crack down on, right? This is what the NYPD needs to do. This is what the legislature needs to be thinking about. They need to be thinking about not allowing unlicensed storefronts, unlicensed trucks, unlicensed tables like right those cannot coexist especially early on and you know over time what you're going to see arthur in new york you're going to see it is that will the black market be completely gone no i know what it's like in new york you make a phone call you're sitting in your apartment next thing you know they deliver it and they got 20 different types right and they got some edibles with them all sorts of things so what's going to incentivize people not to call that person the only thing that's going to do it is make getting it those products at the same price or less better products on the shelves and then safely into the hands of people 21 and over. And that's what adult use is really about. Right? And I've seen it here for seven years. It's, it's a shoulder shrug now in this community. Right? People come into this shop, and in the beginning, seven years ago, they would come in with their hat down. You know, I guess I think they would love, they wish they could wear masks back then, right? <laughs> but now they, now they come in the shop and it's like, hey, Jim, what's up, Sally? How you doing? You know, and you know, it's like a social spot. Right. And so much has changed. And so, you know, I'd say this, Arthur, it's, it's we give it time. The market will mature. You will see the price per gram wholesale will come down to such a low point, which is why the growers aren't going to make billions of dollars. Trust me, no, no one's making tens of millions of dollars, you know, unless you have a chain. But you make but you make a living and you support your family with this store. Yeah, yeah. Right. But we do well. And more importantly, I employ 20 people and I offer health insurance and a living wage. Beautiful. All right, Cass, we got to go, bro. Um, regards from, let's see, Chris Hassan, Vicky Hassan, Andrew Shupak, Derek Aiden. They're all texting me, listening to this live right now. So they I all love said, all you. I love, hey, Polly Prep, big shout out, Polly, <laughs> Arthur Idala. I love you like a brother. 
All right, man. Thank you for all your insight and wisdom. Go any, Anyone wants to know what it looks like, go online. What is it, www.paperandleaf.com? Is that paper it, Steve? And, yeah, paperandleaf.com. You can check it out. Um, you can't buy anything from there, but you can see what, what it looks no like. Delivery. No, That's no delivery. It. All uh, right, Steve. Have a, great, have a great afternoon where you are, and happy 420. Thank you. Happy 420, everybody. All right, folks. We, uh, we have, that was great. That was Steve Kessler. I mean, that's the real deal. Um, you could hear his line was a little messed up, but he had gotten an email from Verizon saying their lines were messed up over there. Um, he is literally on the opposite side of the country from us. Uh, but uh, I hope you learned as much as I did because, look, it's an industry that's not going away. So we might as well get smart about it and know how to handle it. We'll talk a little bit about masks and mask mandates when we get back. I'm taking it next semester, and I know why, why, baby, because I got high, because I got high, because I got high. So next Wednesday, a week from today, today's the 20th, seven days would be the 27th. I'm going to get up super early, and I am going to New Jersey before I go to court. Um, because it is the Salem Business Breakfast. I am so excited that I've been asked to be the moderator. We're going to have all of these great uh, guests who are business people, you know, from Bernie Carrick to Steve Perillo, um, and they're going to be telling us like how they run their business, the highs of them, the lows of them, the highs. It's 420 highs. The highs, the lows, what to do, what not to do. And they put together a great series of prizes and drawings for meals to get to sit down and get to know some of us. So uh, Mike Gallagher is going to give it a, a lunch away, Kevin McCullough and Hillary Kramer. You'll be able to uh, dine with them and get some of her financial tips right before summer. Who, who better to sit with than uh, Val Delia and Kevin McCullough to talk about your next vacation and what the hotspots are? I'd like to have that. And I think one lucky or unlucky winner, depending on how you want to look at that, gets to go to lunch with me at the Friars Club. And maybe we'll bring Imran along as well to make sure we have some fun. So bring your business cards. Make sure you're ready to network. Next Wednesday, April 27th at the Bergen Community College. A special thanks to our sponsors, Magna Flood. Camp of the Woods and Regency Wealth Management. They're the ones who are helping us put this all together. Your tickets are free. You should all be there. It's going to be a blast. Piscopo is going to just really knock it out of the park. Register at am970theanswer.com. Gregory Floyd, host of Reaching Out, gets answers to the tough questions from people in the know. We have our senator from New York State, U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer, on the line. We've been getting a lot of questions about what can be done in these mass shootings. Are there any solutions being discussed on the Hill? There are a number of things we have to do. One is to have universal background checks. You know, there is a right to bear arms, and people who want to have a gun should be able to get one, but only if they're not felons, if they're not adjudicated mentally ill, if they're not spousal abusers. That's all the background check law does, and it has the support of 90% of the people. So we are going to be making a strong effort here on the Hill to deal with background checks. Uh, we're also looking at banning clips of more than 10 bullets. It's Reaching Out with Gregory Floyd at a new time, Saturday afternoon at 2.30 and again at 9 p.m. on AM 970, The Answer. The Arthur Idala Power Hour is sponsored in part by the good people at Freehold Mitsubishi in Freehold Township, New Jersey. America's been thunderstruck by the all-new 2022 Mitsubishi Outlander. Get high style without the high price, plus an industry-leading 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain limited warranty. 
Drive one today at Freehold Mitsubishi for the best selection and outstanding customer service. Just a short ride from anywhere in the metro tri-state area. Visit FreeholdMitsubishi.com or call 732-863-2788. Freehold Mitsubishi in Freehold Township, New Jersey is proud to be an automotive leader in our area and sponsor of the Arthur Idala Power Hour. Mitsubishi dreamers, designers, and engineers are redefining choices in mobility for a whole new generation of independent, modern, and savvy consumers who want value, like the new redesigned 2022 Mitsubishi Outlander featuring its industry-leading Mitsubishi 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain limited warranty. Visit Freehold Mitsubishi today, freeholdmitsubishi.com, or call 732-863-2788. Holland Christian Home, a place for your aging loved one. Here's Jack sharing why he chose to live at Holland Christian Home. My name is Jack. I'm 82 years old. I lived in Clifton, New Jersey. I was a teacher for 38 years. About five or six years ago, I decided I needed to get into a continuing care retirement community. My priority is what care I will get when and if I need it. And the Holland Christian Home is the only place that I looked at where all of the nurses and aides are in-house. All other facilities, you must go to an outside agency and cost you a lot more money to hire aides if, in fact, you need it to get up in the morning and to go to bed at night. From independent living and beyond, feel at home and love. Call Charlotte. She'll show you around. 973-807-3245 or hchnj.org. That's hchnj.org. Holland Christian Home. 973-807-3245. Ask for Charlotte. This is Carol Platt-Lebow for townhall.com. There's nothing worse than gangster government, politicians weaponizing their office to attack an opponent. The Biden administration already did it when the Justice Department threatened to sick the FBI on parents protesting school policies on COVID and CRT. Now they're at it again. Elon Musk has threatened the elite stranglehold on Twitter by trying to buy the publicly held company and restore free speech to it. Fox Business reports the Biden DOJ and SEC have launched a joint investigation into regulatory issues involving not Twitter, but Tesla. Sometimes gangster government isn't just about retribution against a billionaire. It's to deter anyone else from following in his footsteps. If Musk engaged in real wrongdoing, of course he must be held accountable. But without convincing proof, the Biden administration looks all too willing to abuse the system just to punish a political opponent. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Kevin McCullough is next on AM 970. The answer. Boys, Brooklyn, New York, in the house. They actually grew up uh, right where Steve Kessler grew up, um, in that location in Brooklyn, New York. I want to thank Steve Kessler for taking so much time and educating us on the new world we're entering into. And look, I'm 54 years old. 
Um, I think people a lot younger than me, this is the world they're going to grow up in. It's going to be very normal. Uh, it's like, like Steven said, uh, you know, when people used to walk into his store, you know, they wish they had masks, uh, because it was like a shameful thing. And now it's, you know, just another place to hang out. Um, that's going to be the world for our kids unless something drastic happens and they, everyone reverses course. Um, Speaking of masks, this just came over because um, we are live at 6:55. The Center for Disease, Disease, excuse me, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention said Wednesday that it had asked the Justice Department to appeal a federal court ruling striking down its requirements for masks on planes, trains, buses, and other modes of transportation after the CDC concluded that an order requiring masking in the indoor transportation corridor remains necessary for the public health. So there will be an appeal. Initially, so what happened was a lower court judge said that the uh, CDC overstepped its powers when it came down with all these mandates two years ago now, that it didn't have the authority to do it then. This is a case that was brought last July. The court, I don't know why it took so long to write this decision. I understand it's a very important decision, but if you're really looking to change things and you're saying that an agency did something that's illegal, basically um, improper, I guess maybe it would be a better word Then you know, you should um, issue that, that decision fat sooner than later. Uh, but the uh, uh, department of justice did not say it was initially going to appeal. They were leaving it in the hands of the CDC. Like you tell us, do we need to appeal? Don't, don't we need to appeal? And they, they ju- this just came down. So you're getting breaking news on the Idola Power Hour. Um, and another thing that, that came down the pipe right before we, we got on the line here, before we started chatting and spending the evening together. Sorry for that long wisdom story about my bar, past taking the bar exam. But anyone who's done it knows it's a very serious point in your life and something that is embedded in your memory, especially if you pass. But um, 44% more traffic deaths in 2022 than 2021. More people died in traffic crashes in New York City during the first three months of 2022 than the same period of any year since at least 2014. Um, 59 people, 59 people died uh, this year so far. Now, I will tell you, there are these speed cameras up everywhere. I'm getting hit with these $50 tickets. I mean, if I don't get one a week, I, I don't think I'm doing the right thing. It means I'm going too slowly. So, But obviously, this is not a laughing matter. And how that all ties into cannabis, we shall see. Um, thanks for hanging out with us. I think over the last two days, we have a solid hold here on the world of cannabis and what's coming to us and what the intentions are and what reality may be. It's not going to happen overnight, but um, it's going to be interesting. We'll go along for the ride together. Thanks for being with us on Hump Night. See you tomorrow. The preceding program sponsored by Freehold Mitsubishi. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.